Well, you know, there are some passages in the Bible that are really exciting to preach. Uh, you know, there are some that are um, emotional, like when Jesus heals the woman that had, been, had a bleeding issue for years. You know, you can just empathize with, you know, the relief that she felt and the joy that she experienced. And, and, and th those, are, those are emotional passages. They comfort us. They, we feel that um, we're understood in those passages. And th those are really... Really uh, wonderful passages to preach. And then there are the, the power passages, right? The mir miraculous passages where, you know, thousands are fed or demons are expelled or something great happens. And, and those are great to preach because it gives us hope in the midst of our struggle and our trial. And, and look at the power of God here and so we can find great hope in that. And then, then there are these passages, not like those two. And th these are more... Uh, of a warning, of even a rebuke. It, it, it's, it's not sensational, but it's really sobering. Now, when I would warn my children for something or over something, they would generally, no, 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 I, I already know, I already know. You know they, they don't necessarily want to hear the warning, even though they may need to hear the warning. And I think we can be the same way. We, we're thinking, well, we, we know this stuff. And, uh, but Jesus obviously felt it significant to speak to his own disciples, these first ministers of the kingdom. They need to hear this. And if they need to hear this, then I think we need to hear this. He's really talking about two groups of people we're going to find. In verses 1 to 4, he's going to be speaking to these Pharisees and Sadducees. And he's going to rebuke them. Now listen, they were religious people. They were very religious, but they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, many of us can be very religious and be missing the mark. So these aren't atheists. They're not, they are antagonistic, but that, that's not demanded. I mean, these are religious people that Jesus chides and rebukes. And then in verses 5 to 12, he's going to speak to the disciples. And they're just, you know, frankly, they're just kind of slow. And, and, and they're just dull, spiritually speaking. And I think most of us may find a, a spot to sit where they're going to be listening, uh, but, but there's, a, there's a distractedness. It's not a lack of intelligence. When I speak about a dullness or being spiritual dolts, it, it's, not, it's not unintelligence. It's more distraction. It's more, yeah, it, it's more of a, Benign engagement with the gospel is what we're going to say. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 16. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. We're going to look at this kind of a two-part sermon, this warning, this rebuke. He says in 16.1, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in the first four verses, let's just look at those for a minute. He's going to be rebuking these Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember where we've come from, though. Okay, in chapter 15, there's been this kind of big change in redemptive history, right? Jesus Christ has now declared the blessings of the Messiah are now to the Gentiles. Now, this was spoken about in the Old Testament, but it was lost in translation. It wasn't expected. This, Jesus was declaring that God's Messiah was now going to bring hope to all the nations. The Jew and Gentile alike are going to find their hope and joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That's what they're hoping for, they're longing for. This is a big move. And, and, and then he confirmed that truth with this miraculous work of feeding thousands and doing great healings. So it wasn't just a declaration of joy, but boy, some proof was there to see that he is the one. He can back up what he's promised. Okay, they get in the boat, and they go back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is predominantly Jewish. And this is where Jesus is met in our text by these Sadducees and Pharisees. They meet him, and they come, and they want to test him. Now, the first thing is we're surprised at such a gathering of Pharisees and Sadducees. Only one other time in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, are they seen together. Why? Well, they're very different from one another. It is true that together they make up kind of the Judaism of the day, but they're very different from one another. They're very different. The Pharisees were more of a holiness movement. They, they sought to bring God's kingdom in through their rigorous obedience to the law and the traditions of men as they interpret the law. So they think, and they, were, they believed in, in the resurrection, they believed in angels, they believed in the supernatural, but they were diligent to stay away from this Greco-Roman culture which was influencing the people of God, and they wanted to separate. In fact, that's what their name means, Pharisee, to separate. So they wanted to separate themselves so through rigorous obedience to the law, God's kingdom would come. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Now you have the Sadducees over here. The Sadducees were also religious people. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but they felt a little freer to interpret things. They weren't so stuck on all the texts. There were some things that they may or may not believe. They were a little more of a, of a free-thinking group. They weren't so intim intimidated by the culture. They aligned with Rome for purposes that may serve them. They were definitely, they would be what we would call civil religion. So, so they were quite different. Well, well, what would bring, and they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. They were anti-supernaturalists. So, so what would bring such different groups together? Well, they had a common opposition to Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't want it. They didn't believe in him. And so here these two, what could be considered religious enemies, joined together and opposed Jesus. 
And they come together and they confront him and ask for a sign from heaven. They want a sign from heaven. Now, before I speak about what their motivation is, I want you to know that it's not always wrong, at least from an Old Testament perspective, to ask for a sign from heaven. I mean, Isaiah 7.11, Isaiah says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. They're asking for a sign of heaven. Or Jesus Christ himself pointed to his various miracles as signs authenticating his divine ministry, right? Doesn't he say in Luke that if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom has come? So, I mean, Jesus points to his own miracles as evidencing the fact that he's brought a kingdom. But I don't think they're looking to discern the truth of Jesus' ministry here. I think there's something more devious or something more deceptive because he says, it says that they came to test him. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're shouldering now together to now trap him. In, in fact, the word to test him is really, it's the same word used when Satan came to Jesus to test him in Matthew 4. And not surprisingly, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, he also wanted him to do miraculous signs. Make the, make the stones into bread, Jesus. Throw yourself down from the temple and let God's angels catch you, Jesus. So kind of testing Jesus to use his powers in a way that were not to be used. And, and so that's what they're asking. They want to discredit him. They want to, they want to kind of make him a fraud. They want to expose what they thought he really was so that people would not believe him. That's what they're going after. I mean, they want a sign from heaven. They want some cosmological experience. They want some marvel in the sky. They're probably thinking along, well, Moses brought bread down from heaven. Elijah prayed fire down from heaven. I mean, Joshua prayed and the sun stood still. Samuel prayed and God brought thunder and rain and it threw the Philistines into confusion and Israel routed them. Come on, do something big. Well... The fact that they're asking for a sign means that they've rejected all the signs he had given before. I mean, they weren't really interested. I want you to know that. They didn't want to see a sign. In fact, if you were to look back at Matthew chapter 12, Jesus had already given them a sign. When he delivered the, the man from being demonized and the Pharisees saw it, they went back to each other and said, he does this by the power of Beelzebul. He does this from the power of Satan himself. So they already saw a sign, and they weren't impressed. In fact, Jesus had done a lot of signs. Now, if you've been with us through the study in Matthew, I mean, what have we seen him do? He's raised the dead. He's cleansed the leper. He's healed the sick. He's fed 5,000 men plus, 4,000 men plus. He's given sight to the blind. He's given hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb. He has caused the lame to walk. Those were all signs that God said before would mark the Messiah. If you want to be able to identify the Messiah, that's what the Messiah will do. In Isaiah 35, it's very clear. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 35. He says, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He will come and save you. So that's the one we're looking for, right? So how can we identify him? It says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. 
So those are the signs that would identify this Messiah that was coming to save the world. And he did all those things, and they reject him. They reject him. So here, they're not really asking for a sign. They want to try to make him to be a fraud. And that's why Jesus, in verse 2, begins this process of condemning them. He turns to this proverb, and he says, When it's evening, you say it's fair weather, for the sky's red. Morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. He goes, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. You cannot interpret the signs of the time. These were the shepherds of Israel. And Jesus is saying, you, don't, you can interpret the weather, and you can't interpret the signs of the time. Now, many of you knew I grew up on the, uh, just outside of uh, Annapolis, right on the water. And uh, my dad taught me how to sail at a very young age, and Chesapeake Bay was right there, and it was a beautiful place to sail. He taught me how to take the boat out and how to raise the sails, how to trim the sails, how to reef the sails in a storm. And he always taught me how to observe the weather. He said, you want to know what's happening in the weather. And so he taught me, you know, to try to figure out when there's certain, um, you could see the effect of the wind on the water and how that would affect the boat. And so, and so you want to take that, particularly if you're racing, you want to take that into consideration. Where's the wind coming from? How's it coming? But he would often tell me, he'd stay out there at night, and he'd say this to me. He'd say, remember this, whenever you're sailing, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. In other words, if there was a red sky in the morning, you better watch it, because of good possibility of bad weather ahead. So it's obvious, if you can interpret the weather, but you can't interpret the signs of the time. Now listen, the signs of the time, that word for time, isn't minutes or seconds or hours. It's an occasion. It's an event. He's saying to them, you, the shepherds of Israel, cannot see the Messiah is standing in front of you. All the signs, all the miracles have pointed to this, and you've missed it. You've totally missed it. I mean, folks, at a minimum, let's just step back from our confidence in who we are and what we think. These were religious leaders. They were pouring over the scriptures, and they did not see it. If you're a Christian here, I mean, rejoice that your eyes have been opened to these things. I mean, thank, don't you just want to thank God? Why do I believe in them? Why do I trust in them? It's amazing. It hasn't come from our intelligence or effort. God is gracious to us it's just i just want to stop and thank god for that thank god for that they missed it and do you see what jesus does he then condemns them he says an adulterous evil generation to seek a sign why they rejected all the signs he had given them and so he condemns him he says listen you'll get no more signs except for the sign of jonah isn't that, it, it's gracious of God, still at the very end, he says, no, you'll have one more sign. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, a lot of these things you have to interpret. You don't have to interpret this one, because he tells us in chapter 12, verse 40 in Matthew, this is what Jesus says, for just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is drawing a parallel with Jonah. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, didn't want to go to Nineveh, swallowed by a fish three days and three nights. He was in the belly of a fish. So will Jesus be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And just as Jonah was brought forth out of the fish, 
to preach and declare the gospel to the Ninevites. So Jesus will be brought forth out of the earth. Death will not be able to hold Christ. Come forth, declaring the gospel to be true and believable. This will be the sign is the resurrection. The last sign that will be given. The sign that's given to us is evidence of the resurrection. That's the sign. So you, and then notice in verse 4, it says, and then he departed. He left them. He won't return to Galilee except to pass through. So Jesus here is really, in the first four verses, is bringing heat to bear on these religious leaders. Those who have rejected him, who have disbelieved him. So, so what do we do with this? Let me just stop here for a minute and just speak to you regarding what can we take away from this? Well, it's clearly, you know, if there's a non-Christian here, that this is very important. And, and I love when people are investigating issues of the faith. I, I love speaking to people who are not Christian, but who are investigating these things. Uh, I think this is, this is a good few verses to consider, but not just the non-Christian for you, the Christian. I, I mean, to consider how you came to faith, because you see, the first takeaway I'd say in these first four verses, the first takeaway is that a saving faith is not predicated on evidence. It's not predicated on evidence or persuasion of a preacher or a friend. In other words, you see here that evidence was plain to see. I mean, miracles may display the glory of God. Miracles may wow you, but they can't create faith. You see that. I mean, the idea, the old adage, seeing is believing, not true. Not true with faith in Jesus Christ. Save, the greatest obstacle to saving faith is this hardness of heart. It's an issue of the heart. To believe is an issue of the heart. And, and you see the hardness and the brokenness and the arrogance. Give me more signs. Give me more signs. They're, they're not moving with faith. You see this clearly in John chapter 5. Jesus says this to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The responsibility is made clear that they refused to believe. Their hearts were hard. It wasn't evidence. He says the same in, in John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He says this, John records, he says, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. See, they saw him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, faith is driven. It's, it's, a, it's us moving in humility towards God in Christ. It isn't the evidence. They saw the signs and they refused to believe. This is really a warning for us. Those who reject Jesus, it's not in antagonism. It's, I'm choosing not to believe. I don't want to believe in him. I don't want to submit to his leadership. I don't want to submit to his rule. It's much more at the heart level than it is, I've got to have the perfect presentation. I've got to marshal the perfect evidence to convince him. Not so. It's the hardness of heart. Compare this with the Gentiles in 15. 
In chapter 15, the Gentiles, you don't see them seeking Jesus for Jesus to prove himself. You see them seeking him because they need his help. They've humbled themselves before him. Remember how they were casting down their sick at his feet? You don't see the Gentiles in chapter 15 standing in defiance over Jesus, saying, hey, prove yourself to me. You see them kneeling before him in desperation. You see a humility here. See, entering the kingdom of God is through the humbling of our souls, recognizing our sin, and appealing to him for grace and mercy. I mean, does he not say this, that the humble and contrite heart he will not despise? If you go to chapter 5 of Matthew, kind of the gateway to the kingdom, if you will, the first beatitude, blessed is he who is poor in spirit, for his is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is given to the humble, the broken, doesn't Jesus say, unless you come as a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? There's that brokenness, that, that repentance. God, have mercy on me. The child doesn't put on airs. The child doesn't try to promote self and look at all that he's done. He just comes in absolute weakness. This is the way to the kingdom. This is what they missed. So faith is not predicated on evidence, but it's it moves to the brokenness of the heart, appealing to God for mercy. But not just that. Faith is not something that you can just presume you have plenty of time to exercise, particularly if you're not a Christian. You think, well, I'm going to think about this stuff later. People tell me, particularly when they're in college, yeah, I'm going to think about these things later. Well, just hold on for a minute. Notice in verse 4 at the very end, he says, he, says, he departed from them. So Jesus is going to go to Caesarea Philippi, in the next section, and then he's going to pass back through Galilee. We'll see him in 1722. He'll be in Galilee, but he won't do any more healing. He won't do any more teaching. They are now cut off. You can hear a thud. You can hear like a door slam. He departed from them. We never want to presume that we have time to give consideration to these things of God. I mean, you don't have to live many years to recognize nobody would have the audacity to stand up here and say, I will be here five years from now. When you're young, you do. Because you're foolish not recognizing the brevity of life and just the precariousness of it from our human perspective. So we don't want to presume upon God. And I would encourage anyone here that if you're considering these things, give them of utmost importance. Consider them a top priority to consider. But then thirdly, I think faith isn't predicated on obedience. We don't want to presume having time to discuss the faith. But, but thirdly, I'd ask you to consider the fact that faith has to rest on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has to rest. Jesus said, only one sign I'll give you, and that is the sign of Jonah pointing to the resurrection. Let me remind you, the resurrection is God's authentication upon the work that Jesus Christ has done. So we know the gospel that Jesus has, has borne our sin and borne our shame. And as I explained last week, when he was bearing our sin, and we know he was bearing our sin because remember on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The forsakenness of God as Jesus bears the sin, the wrath of God, the righteous, the perfect wrath of God explodes on Jesus Christ because God is just and he will punish sin. But for the Christian, Jesus is the sin substitute. He's bearing our sin. And he bears it, suffers, and dies, and is buried. But then God brought him forth out of the earth. And God is authenticating all the promises of God are now yes in Christ. 
So the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that he's an acceptable, he's a perfect sacrifice. Every Christian can rest so comfortably that because he's been raised, he's the first fruits, we too shall be raised. And he did it in space and time. It isn't a theory, it's not an ideology. Jesus Christ had a body, he suffered, he died, he was raised in the body, he ascended in the body, all for us, in space and time. And the, the, the sign of his messiahship is in his resurrection. Paul makes this clear in chapter 1, verse 4. He says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus the Christ, our Lord. This is incredibly important for us. I mean, for the non-Christian here, investigate the claims of the resurrection. Uh, the, the you know, there's so many people that have sought to disprove the resurrection and end up believing because of the resurrection. C.S. Lewis would be one name that you'd be familiar with. It's essential to our faith. I mean, I think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17. What does Paul say? He says this. He he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if we're just going to believe in Jesus because it really helps us exist in this life, he says, we are people most to be pitied. Isn't that amazing? Later on, he says, if Christ be not raised, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, it's the precursor to whatever. Whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because if he hasn't been raised, we're going to be in the we're going to be in the hole forever. But what's interesting is the last verse in chapter fifteen just sits on the resurrection. He says, "Therefore, brothers, be steadfast and movable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain." In other words, if he's been raised, and everything we do matters, everything matters. So faith is driven; it's seated, it's seated on that resurrection. We want to rejoice in the resurrection. We want to rejoice that God has confirmed everything and declared him to be the Messiah, to be the king, that faith in Christ alone will bring us to God fully, completely, and totally in joy. So, so these are the first four verses. He's speaking, remember now, he's speaking to the religious. He's speaking to a group like us, saying, do you love Christ? Have you submitted to him? This isn't a matter of have you kept some code or moral law or you think good thoughts of God. Have you submitted to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, trusting him alone to bring you to God? That's what makes the Christian, not the moralist, not the philanthropist, not the person who studies. Think about it. You study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they bear witness to me. The scriptures all lead us to Christ. So it's essential. We can reject him almost in believing he's existed and he's done these things. But it's the submission, it's the humility, it's the dependence, it's the casting ourselves. Jesus, save me from myself. Okay, so that's the word in 1 to 4. Look with me at 5 to 12. This may sit a little closer to home with you. And this is, I, I think, a sad point, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jesus' ministry. I, I I think it, there had to be a level of frustration. Um, the, so they get back in the boat. They're going up to Caesarea Philippi, and, and they land, and the disciples make the astute observation that they have no bread. Now, of course, my question is, you had seven huge basketfuls of it just a few minutes ago. 
Did no one bring any bread? But that isn't even the point. The point is that they're thinking about the bread, and so Jesus uses this opportunity, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, what's he saying here? Beware of the leaven. You know what leaven is? Leaven is yeasted bread, really. It's yeast put in dough. You know what happens with yeast? It gets in dough and it begins to almost imperceptibly kind of permeate the entire loaf, and the loaf begins to expand. So, so yeast affects the whole lump. It affects it all completely, given time, but you can't really see it. And so Jesus is saying, beware of the yeast, of the, or the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, he's saying, beware of their teaching. Now, leaven can be something good. It's a metaphor. You know, in Matthew 13, we looked at how the kingdom of God is like yeast, right? The kingdom of God is going to grow. Starts out in Jerusalem, and look, it's gone all over the world. So we've seen the yeast of the kingdom grow. Here, I don't think it has the positive kind of connotation. I think it has a negative one. It's the teaching of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. He says, watch out for that. Now, let me, let me just explain real quick what this false teaching is I think we're talking about. It's not just the disbelief that Jesus is Messiah. The Sadducees were ritualists. They were legalists. So they felt that if I do these things, if I obey the law and the traditions of man on the law, then God will find me favorable. That, that, that if I just really try diligently to follow God, that God will say, yeah, yeah, come, come be with me in heaven. And, and they found their acceptance and their favor with God based upon themselves and their own righteousness, even if it's not a perfect righteousness. Everybody believes this initially. If you ask, if I were to ask anybody here, if you're not a Christian, and I say, well, why, why would God bring you to himself when you die? We're all going to die, and so why will he do it? And what is the answer? You know the answer. The answer is, well, I haven't killed anybody. I, I haven't raped anybody. I mean, we look at the things we haven't done, or we say, hey, listen, I've gone to church. I've tithed. I've done all these things. Anytime you ask that question, as soon as they go to their own behavior, either what they do or what they don't do, they're resting in their own righteousness, which is what we just sang about. We don't rest in our righteousness. But they were legalists. You know you're a legalist when you begin to live in fear of God. When you're not sure how God is with you, that if I ask you, hey, do you feel comfortable about dying? I say, I, I don't know how God's going to treat me. In other words, some of the evidence of legalism in life is a fear of God, a concern that he may or may not love you. A another evidence of legalism in life is, is uh, really cynicism, judgmentalism, because you've got a code of behavior that you have to keep, and when other people don't keep that code of behavior, that bothers you. Because you're having to do it, they have to do it if they're going to go to the same place you're going. And so there's this judgmentalism and division. There's also a sense of picayuneness with theology. You know, with theology, the legalists can often start picking apart secondary points of theology, and we forget the one to whom all theology points, because we're getting all knotted up in the details. They may be fine for discussion points, but they don't ever, should never cause separation. So that's the legalist. That, that is a warning for you. That applies to us here. We can be guilty of that. We have our own little, you know, that if you don't have your devotions perfectly through the week, maybe God doesn't feel the same way about you on Friday that he did on Sunday after church. That would be a scent 
of legalism. Your total acceptance is Jesus Christ. But the other side is the Sadducees. They're kind of the, they're kind of the rationalists. They're the civil religion. They're the ones that kind of, you know, kind of pick and choose, and they kind of create their own God. They're kind of saying, well, God will accept us with this, and God will accept us with this. It's kind of like the younger brother, older brother picture in the parable of the prodigal son. The rationalists were, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I think there's a heaven. Yeah, I think God's going to judge people, but I think God's going to be generous to people. And, and we kind of create this scenario about God as to how we want to believe about it. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you better watch that. <clears throat> that, that, that. Those teachings are going to slip into the church and it's going to ruin it. So that's what he's asking them to beware of. Okay, now you notice that he warns them of that. He warns us of legalism in this church and licentiousness. He warns us of being ritualists and being people that are just playing too fast and loose with our freedom. He's war- There's some area in there, it's great, but he's warning us of those things. Okay, so the disciples go back to the bread. Well, he's thinking we're talking about bread. And of course, this is where Jesus has got to hit the point of just, oh my gosh. The, 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 when he says to them, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? In other words, they had forgotten. He says, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and, and the seven loaves for the 4,000? In other words, <clears throat> their weak faith caused them to not understand. They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand the things that were going on. They didn't understand the plan of Jesus. Why? Because of weak faith. Do you realize that faith helps us to understand? See, many of us think it's the other way around. If I can just understand things, then I can believe. And Jesus is saying, no, you first have to have faith, and then things clear up. So faith gives way to understanding. You cannot understand the things of God. This is really a word for the non-Christian. You can't understand all the things of God apart from faith. Faith gives us this vision of seeing things clearly. That's why Augustine, church father, said, I believe that I might understand. Faith leads to understanding. Okay, so you kind of see this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. It's kind of frustrated. They're not getting it. They're dull. They're spiritually lethargic. Okay, so, so what do we take away from that? Well, of course, we can apply that directly to us as Christians. Let me just give you a couple, a couple takeaways on this. How do we overcome this, this kind of lethargic spirituality? Many of you complain to a certain dullness a certain lack of vitality in faith, a lack of understanding. So, so what do we see in this text that kind of helps us here? Well, a couple things. I think there's definitely the focusing on the gospel. We want to focus on the gospel. Think about the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both are misunderstandings of the gospel. Okay, the Pharisees want to add. It's the gospel plus this code or behavior or theology. It's the gospel plus. Now, in the, in the Sadducees, it's the gospel less. It's the, well, you don't need that, and you don't need this, and it's a, a taking away from the gospel. We want to focus on the gospel and all the implications. We will never tire of considering and thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for us. There is not one day that we're going to walk away from that. I, I think, in part, Jesus was raised with his wounds, 
He bears the wounds. So in Revelation 5, you know, the lion, but he's also the lamb because he's been slain. So the wounds are going to be visible for eternity. Why? I think a reminder of this is the greatest display of divine justice and divine love together. We'll never back away from the gospel. So when we get into the corollary, the, the side stuff, it's okay to have discussions on that. But we're a people that are not bound by our educational philosophy, by our, by our social upbringing, by our education, or by, by our ethnicity. We are bound by the gospel. That is the gravitational center of the church, and it has to be. Otherwise, we're no different than the Rotary Club or the Garden Club or anything else. So first, focus on the gospel. That's why we say preach the gospel to yourselves every day. It's a reminder of God's great love for you. But, but, but secondly, uh, seek the kingdom of God. I, I, I want you to consider the apostles still thinking bread. We can become so quickly earthbound and earth-focused. Folks, it takes these reminders to seek first the kingdom of God. If you think about it, they're worried about bread because they're worried about what they're going to eat. Now, Jesus had already told them in Matthew 6, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. So we want to be a people that are constantly doing some good introspection of our lives with what is getting the most out of our life. Where is our money, our time, our energies going to? What if I were to study your life for a week what would I say are your top three loves? Is God in there? Is the desire to declare God in there? I mean, is the service unto God in there? It's amazing. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says the end of all things is near. So you'd think he would then say, so buckle up because it's going to be a ride. No, no, no. He says, exercise hospitality to one another. Serve one another with the gifts that God's given you, whether it's the gifts of speech or the gifts of service. Say, no, be about the business of God. Seek his kingdom in the lives of one another. So, so be diligent to look through what is my life really, what's emanating out of my life? And, and then a third thing to consider is to remember his grace. Notice how Jesus says, he says this, he says, Rem, don't you remember? They had forgotten. Now he reminded them, and then in verse 12 it says, then they understood. Reminders are good. We forget. Isn't it funny how silly we can be? Because I know you're thinking, these, these disciples must be the most block-headed individuals to see two different healing ministries, or sorry, two different feeding miracles, and they're still wondering about bread. And we can almost stand in judgment over their silliness. And yet we are they. I mean, it's the same. We need to be reminded. Do you remember the disciples? Even when Jesus was raised, they went to the tomb and they saw the angels. And they go up to the angels and they, of course, bow down. That's what you tend to do when you see an angel. And, and the angels said this. They were frightened. They bowed with their faces to the ground. And they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. He would rise. I mean, do you not remember? Or Peter, in his second letter to the church, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring your sincere mind by way of reminder. We need to be reminded. This is really a word to the church here. It's really a word about the community. We need each other 
to remind each other of these things. Why? We forget. We forget. I mean, we're like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and he goes away. And he forgets what he sees. It's like, you know, I have a plumbing issue. I do a YouTube. Okay, I understand it. Sure, I go, I go to the, the plumbing problem and I forget everything I just saw. We forget so easily. We need to be encouraged in these things. We need to be reminded of these things. That's why Sunday morning actually is so significant. I mean, every week you hear probably some similar things. The reminders over and over because it's so difficult to keep these thoughts resonance in your mind without the help of other people. We need each other desperately. So we have this warning to the disciples. We have a warning to the religious. Do not disbelieve in the Son of God. We have a warning to the disciples about their dullness. And, and the way we overcome dullness is to focus on the gospel, to keep that central, to um, seek the kingdom of God. Not, you know, many of us are still busy building our kingdoms. You are. I mean, we, we want to climb that ladder of success. We want to be seen as valuable in the eyes of men. And I want to say to you, that is a wrong-headed direction. Work hard, be diligent, display, and use the gifts of God for the betterment of people at work, but do it for the glory of God. This world is passing away. We don't want to seek our kingdoms. We want to seek his kingdom. And the last, let's be people that are thankful to remind one another of these truths. And this will lead us out of the spiritual dryness and dullness. So let me, um, let's pray for a minute. Now, we have these few minutes of silent prayer set aside. How we pray for you on Sunday morning is this. <clears throat> we ask God to convict you of sin for that which you may have been you know, something in your life may have been brought up in the text. We ask the Lord to bring conviction to your soul to lead you to repentance and faith. For some of you, you're really struggling in life and you're having trouble believing this. We pray that you would have the grace to believe. But in these moments, we're expecting God, who right now is sustaining the universe by his word, we ask him to move in this minute or two to apply these truths in your life that would lead you to thankfulness, confession, petition for grace. So let's be silent in our prayer, but let's be diligent to seek God over what we've just heard. And then um, Ray's going to close us in just a minute. Thank you.